Welcome to Books and Nachos. A podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. fiction to nonfiction, graphic novels, and more. We're here to help you find something great to read. Welcome to Books and Nachos, the Venganza Media podcast about all things in print. I'm your host, Stuart in LA, welcoming you back to the second installment of Odyssey with a review of 2010. As that title implies, the story is picking up nine years after astronaut Dave Bowman entered the monolith and was transformed into the Star Child. But 14 years have passed between the dual movie and book releases of 2001 A Space Odyssey and this sequel novel publication. For much of the 1970s, author Arthur C. Clarke was disinterested in writing an Odyssey follow-up. He did write another screenplay. He offered it to Stanley Kubrick, who passed, as did the rest of Hollywood. And so Clarke just basically packed it in, went home to Sri Lanka, and went back to writing books. He had several successes in the 1970s, including arguably his most famous book, Rendezvous with Rama. So it looked like You know, he didn't need Odyssey. The monolith moment had seemingly passed until Clark once again was inspired by the real-life space race. In 1977, NASA launched Voyager 1 and Voyager 2, and by 1980, those probes were sending incredible data back about Jupiter and Saturn. The author wanted to write a work of fiction that capitalized on those findings, and he saw a natural tie to 2001 given the fact that the Discovery Spaceship mission was marooned in that area of the solar system. Now, I don't think Clark even asked Kubrick to co-write a second screenplay. The director was editing The Shining anyway, and he had no interest in rehashing Old Glory or making a sequel. Honestly, I think Clark was actually relieved to be solo captain now of the story. It really meant that it was his to tell this time. He didn't have to wait for the film rushes. I think the way that he wrote 2001 in collaboration with Kubrick was a real strain on him, you know, constantly having to revise a manuscript for years and years. He's able to produce 2010 Odyssey 2 in half the time it took for that pair to write the final draft of the original. He started work in 1980. By January 1982, it's out on bookshelves. And yes, a film of 2010 was made by writer-director-cinematographer Peter Himes in heavy consultation with Arthur C. Clarke. They talked a lot about the script, but the book was published first. The movie came two years later. It was an adaptation of a book, not a companion piece. So therefore, if you want to know my thoughts on the movie, please join me, Arnie, Jacob, We're over at Sister Podcast now playing Talking About It this week, but I'm going to remain focused on the source material for this show. I'm talking about 2010, the book, and 2010, the movie, will be discussed elsewhere. 
you'll recall that there were some major differences between book and movie versions of 2001. On the page, the Discovery went past Jupiter, and it rendezvoused with the monolith way out in the moons of Saturn. Not only that, but Dave Bowman came back as the star child to destroy all nuclear weapons back on Earth. So, any attempt to write a sequel to 2001 meant deciding which continuity to follow. Was he going to pick up on those story strands that Kubrick didn't touch? Was he going to make a sequel to his own novel? Or was he going to go with the version that everyone really knew? I mean, I think Arthur C. Clarke was wise to go with making a sequel to Kubrick's vision. He knew what people remembered was what they saw in the movie theater. And only a fraction of those people probably even bothered to read the novelization. I don't know that they would even remember it 16 years later. Plus, I think the Voyager data stuff really excited him about Jupiter. He wanted to talk about Jupiter. So if Kubrick had the discovery at Jupiter, that he'll just change it so that's where Dave Bowman left Jupiter. I really saw the novel of 2001 as having three distinct narrators that were all really coming from the same place. There was a caveman, there was the head of the space program, and there was Dave Bowman, the astronaut. And they were all moon watchers, in a sense. They were all extraordinary people that were taking a big step forward and looking up to the heavens to try and find something new. I think that Clark basically keeps that format here for 2010. There are three primary narrators telling the story of a rendezvous mission with Discovery. The first of which is Dr. Haywood Floyd. It is a returner. It's that head of the space program, although he no longer serves in that capacity. He was the one that greenlit the Discovery mission. He sent three scientists one astronaut to their death. Perhaps Dave Bowman is dead as well. He is not sure. They had a final transcript from him in which he seemed to be rocketing off at the speed of light, saying, my God, it's full of stars. They knew he was referring to the monolith, but they did not know what became of him. And obviously, nine years have passed. Floyd and really all three of the primary narrators are haunted characters. I mean, last time I saw it, about aspiration. This time I see a lot of regret. He feels really terrible that he took a mission that was meant to go to Jupiter and sent it all the way to Saturn on really a foolish, almost suicidal mission. They didn't even have a way to get those people home. They were still building the ship to go pick them up from hyperspace. It's not even done in 2010. That's why he actually has to hitch a ride with the Russians. The Russians are ready to go to Jupiter in the Leonov. And so if he wants to go face his fears and soothe his guilty conscience and find out what really went wrong on the discovery, find out where Dave Bowman ended up, find out maybe what the monolith is, He's got to work with this international crew. I don't think anything means more to him than having these answers. And it comes at a real cost. He's going to get closure on Dave Bowman, but it will cost him his marriage. We find out that in the nine years since 2001, he left the space program. He actually lost his wife in an airplane crash. He has found love again with a marine biologist. He's moved to Hawaii and become a teacher. It's kind of a cushy job. You get the sense that he has many things that would make many people happy. A son, 
a house with dolphins. He has pet dolphins that swim around in his living room. It's pretty cool, I gotta say. But he is still very much haunted and still very much saddened about his role in sending Dave Bowman to a presumed death. And so when he signs up with the Leonov, he tells his wife goodbye. I'm not going to be back for years. I might never be back if something should go wrong. It's quite a thing. I mean, he didn't negotiate with her. He told her, I'm going to do this. And although he tries to stay in contact, he sends back voice messages, kind of telling her what's going on, trying to keep her in his life and, and make her feel like he is still thinking about her. She ultimately becomes very frustrated with the scenario and they divorce. Before the mission is over, she has left the marriage. He has no marriage to return to. But Floyd comes to believe that it was a necessary sacrifice. He thinks that his marriage would have failed anyway because he was so racked with guilt and preoccupied with the discovery failure. I think Clark identifies a lot with Floyd. I, he also had a marriage that failed. He put his career ahead of relationships. And I think that he basically wants us to think of Floyd as our guide across the solar system. We see most of the events that occur in 2010 from Floyd's point of view. And the novel can feel very episodic at times. It's helpful to have Floyd kind of explaining what's going on because there's the culture clash with the Russian crew. There are things that are happening. They, they pass by the moon of Jupiter Europa and there's a strange phenomenon going on there. There's a risky, never tried before breaking procedure. All of that is filtered through Floyd's perspective. He tells us what's going on. He distills the science so that we feel it has a personal connection. And as I mentioned, he does eventually get closure about losing Dave Bowman because Dave Bowman actually comes back. He actually meets Dave Bowman on the Discovery once they get back to that ship, get it operational again, start doing test procedures. He sees Dave. It actually communicates to him through Hal, or at least whatever's left of Dave now that he's returned from the Stargate. Let me explain. Dave is really that second character that I was referring to, the second point of view of 2010. We come to understand for the past nine years, Dave has been inside the Stargate, inside the monolith, in that parallel dimension, whatever it is, he has been gestating. I'll actually read you a passage as Clark describes it. He was an embryo god, not yet ready to be born. For ages, he floated in limbo, knowing what he had been, but not what he had become. He was still in a state of flux, somewhere between chrysalis and a butterfly, or perhaps only between caterpillar and chrysalis. And then later, he gave no thought to the gateway between universes dwindling so swiftly behind him, or to the anxious entities gathered around it in their primitive spacecraft. He's basically referring to Floyd and the discovery here. They were part of his memories, but stronger ones were calling him now, calling him home to the world he had never thought to see again. As I stated with Floyd, Dave Bowman has baggage. He has guilt. He needs to return to Earth to find closure. And so he makes his entrance really through the monolith. Floyd and the whole Leonov crew are observing that giant black rectangle floating in space. They've nicknamed it Big Brother, kind of an Orwellian touch. I think that's kind of funny. And all of a sudden, it is full of stars, and they see streaking out of it a giant comet that goes hurtling to Earth. That's Dave. Dave is now a being of pure energy. He's not really a fetus, the way he was presented at the end of the novel of 2001 or 
Kubrick's movie. He's more just like a UFO, something that they cannot identify. But he does reach the exterior of Earth and destroys all the nuclear satellites, as he did at the end of the Clark 2001 novel, but not as a statement about anti-war. I mean, the way that it read originally, I saw it that this child was going to take away our weapons and lead us to a new destiny, a very utopian, hippie, peacenik kind of movement. No, he needs the nuclear energy to take form. He is going to use it to become Dave Bowman again, a material being. And so I think it's a byproduct of the fact that, yes, we don't have nuclear satellites hovering in space anymore, but it wasn't the point. The point is that Dave can now return back in time to a pivotal moment that touched him as a child. He was 15 years old and doing a very dangerous scuba diving experiment with his older brother who ends up dying, that they have gotten some kind of garden hose, attached it to a used air pump, and thought that they could get to the bottom of their Crystal Springs lake. And in fact, it was Dave's responsibility to monitor the oxygen flow, and his brother died while trying to swim in the bottom of this lake. The reconfigured alien Dave rewatches this moment, and then tries to reconnect with the people hurt by the loss of his older brother, Bobby. He first finds his old girlfriend, who actually would go on to have a sexual affair with Dave and have his child, that out of her grief of losing her boyfriend, she took up with the younger brother. And so he comes to her as a vision on a television set, and she asks if he is a, a spirit. And even he can't answer what he has become, you know. He actually says at one point, am I an angel? Well, it kind of feels that way. It kind of feels like he has come from the great beyond to give some kind of comfort and to let her know that everything is going to be okay. And he does the same thing for his mother, who is still alive, barely, in some kind of futuristic nursing home, where apparently all nurses will be holograms. That was kind of a neat little twist. If you wanted to see Clark imagine what future healthcare is going to look like, it's here a little bit on the page. But this is not entirely Dave. Dave equates what he is to being a hunting dog. He is working for the aliens, his masters, he even refers to them. He is sniffing around the earth for ideas. I mean, keep in mind, remember, the aliens have never actually been there themselves. They've sent the monolith back in prehistoric times, but I don't think that they've come back since cavemen evolved into modern man. So he's here sort of on a fact-finding mission to see all of the good stuff that we've done and, and combing it for ideas for their new project. Because after he is done with Earth, he goes to Europa, a moon of Jupiter, which has life. And this is where Clark works in all of his ideas about Jupiter. You know, the stuff that he got back from Voyager, he conceived all the kinds of life that could be there now that he knows the properties of the air, the ice, all of that. He's got a very elaborate, detailed description of an ecosystem with the primary creatures that live there apparently are plants even though it is an ice moon underneath that icy surface are chlorophyll entities that are like giant walking banyan trees is, is basically how clark describes them and so the idea that dave 
basically concludes is that his masters want to turn this icy planet with these life forms into a new kind of Earth. They want to do for these creatures what they did for us back three million years ago when we were cavemen. That requires big things to happen. The monolith is actually going to transform the entire planet of Jupiter into a new light source, a a new sun, as it were, so it could help these plant creatures grow and thrive and turn the ice planet into a lush green forested world. And as a courtesy, he decides to warn his old friends back at the Discovery, what's going on. That's actually how he reacquaints himself with Floyd. Floyd is working on Hal. He appears to him in a vision and tells him, you have to believe me now that you can see me. You have 15 days to get out of here. You must leave this area. He doesn't tell them that Jupiter's about to turn into a sun. He just, I think he thinks that the threat is enough to, hey, I'm a ghost. That should scare you enough. I don't need to go into the whys and hows. And perhaps he doesn't even fully understand it at this point. Keep in mind, he is merely the guard dog for the aliens. He is working in their service. He is a servant, but he doesn't have all the answers. But this news upsets Floyd greatly because although he's happy to see Dave alive-ish, He knows that they actually need 26 days before the alignment of the solar system is such that they can get home. They only have a certain amount of fuel. It requires to happen at a certain point in time. 15 days is not long enough. So in order to fulfill this mission, they're going to have to rely on that computer, Hal, who has been turned back on and is not necessarily the most trustworthy member of the crew, given how he basically killed four people the last time. And that brings us to the third narrator of 2010, his name is, okay, I'm going to try this, Dr. Siva Subramaniya Chandra Segarampilia, or Dr. Chandra, as it's easier to pronounce. He is the professor of computer science at the University of Illinois who designed HAL 9000. He's been allowed to join the Leonov mission as well, and obviously he, too, has a lot of regret, because his invention stands accused of murdering the Discovery crew after falsely determining that their communication link was about to fail when it was working perfectly fine. So Chandra has been given the task of waking the sleeping giant and seeing what's wrong with them, and he does come up with an answer. Basically, what Chandra realizes is that Hal was told to withhold information from Dave and Frank, and that that knowledge, that secret, was counterintuitive to how he had been designed and programmed. He was programmed to give humans as much information as they needed. So the presidential decree to not tell them about the monolith found on the moon made him develop a psychosis. If you ask me, it sounds like Chandra's passing the buck. He designed a system in a way that was severely flawed. If it wasn't able to do this, I would say the problem is with the programming, not with the president. Computers should be able to do what we need them to do. So I don't know that I really like this as a motivation, but it's the only answer we have. And basically, Chandra is very defensive. This is his child. This is what he cares about. He cares about it more than anything on Earth. And he actually makes the declaration as the crew is talking about heading back, I'm going to stay. 
I'm a Buddhist, I'm an Indian, I can subsist on the little water that's left. I know it's going to take three years for a Discovery 2 to be finished and come pick me up. I can survive in that time and I'll, I'll be able to hang out with Hal and, and be with the one that I love. But all of that changes. I'm not sure they would have even let him do that, but all of that has to change when they get word from Dave Bobin's ghost that they have to get out of there. Because the only way they're going to be able to leave in 15 days is to use the Discovery One as an extra booster. Hal is going to have to help them escape, and in doing so, Hal is going to be left behind, destroyed when Jupiter goes supernova. So the question remains, it hangs in the balance. Hal flipped his lid last time when they talked about shutting him off after he made a mistake. What's he going to do when he finds out he has to sacrifice himself and the ship he was programmed to protect to get this Russian vehicle out of the blast radius? That's sort of what drives the climax. And I think it's a really good hook. I mean, it really is making Hal central to the climax in a way that, quite frankly, he was never central to 2001. He's actually working well with the monolith story this time. Now, for this review, I did focus on Dr. Floyd, Dr. Chandra, and Dave Bowman, because to me, those were the characters with backstory, with guilt to absolve. They were the interesting ones. But there's a lot of other things going on here in 2010 as well. It's it's actually kind of a cluttered novel. There are many other characters. There's the female Russian pilot. There's Kurnow, an American engineer that's been sent to get Discovery operational, but he's not an astronaut, so that's a source of tension. There's a replacement Russian who was disfigured, and everyone's wondering what happened to her face. I mean, lots of subplots and gossip and, and sharing and all of it that makes it feel real. I mean, these feel like a an interesting crew, but the story of the monolith and of how kind of can sometimes get lost in all of the chatter. I focused on the characters that best elucidate that. I do wish that Clark had worked a little bit harder at making the main storyline come through and maybe decentralize some of these supporting characters and subplots. There's even a subplot about the Chinese. Uh, in the movie, uh, they make it seem like all the political tension is based on, you know, Russia versus America. But truly, the race here is that the Russian ship is trying to get to Discovery before the Chinese do. And the Chinese are beating them. It actually whizzes past them, looks like it's going to get to Discovery first, lands on the moon of Europa to refuel and is destroyed by those tree creatures I mentioned, that they're drawn to light because the ship had its lights on when it landed. It was within seconds grabbed by all these branches and pulled apart, and one man was able to send a transmission to Dr. Floyd uh, telling him what was happening. But, yeah, a great subplot, but boy, that just felt randomly thrown in there. I guess it does tease what is ultimately the most important discovery about 2010, that Europa is going to be the next focus for the monolith. If a couple lights on a Chinese spaceship makes the tree branches sprout out of the ice that quickly, can you imagine what it's going to do now that it has a new sun? What is so important about what's here on Europa that it's worth sacrificing the entire planet of Jupiter? Only God or the monolith knows. I'll let readers discover the conclusion for themselves, but long story short, our heroes do manage to get out of the blast radius in time. Hal is redeemed, and 
the new Jupiter sun is rechristened Lucifer. Can you imagine? <laughs> Satan? Really? You think that's going to fly with the public? Can you really call any new celestial body, particularly a new sun, can you name it after, yeah, the Antichrist? But then I started to think about what it meant in terms of Europa, and I kind of think it's a perfect name, because Hal's last transmission, as dictated by Dave Bowman, is that we're allowed to explore anywhere we want within the cosmos except for Europa. It is a forbidden garden. We are cast out of it. It is a very biblical scenario. And so there's a temptation there, right? There's a Lucifer there shining on. I have to believe, I don't know what the plot is for the next two Odyssey books, but I have to believe that somebody is going to tempt fate is going to take a bite of that apple, is going to head back to Lucifer and to the gardens of Europa to see what this new life might be. If Clark can keep up the quality he's had in 2001 and 2010, I think we're in for two more good books. Yes, indeed, there are structural problems with 2010. It is a little clunky and hard to follow, but Clark's prose is still very good, and again, he never lets anyone feel too confused or confounded about what's going on. So even though I found it hard to keep track of where I was supposed to pay attention, I always understood the information being presented to me. I think that's his gift. And I'll go ahead and say it. I I said I wouldn't at the beginning of this, but I will. This book is better than the movie that came out of it. I will elaborate further over at Now Playing, but in short, I do think that you definitely want to read this before you see the movie. And unlike what we discussed last week, where I felt like the movie was vastly superior here, I think that Clark gets it right. And Peter Himes, well, he's not as successful. But enough movie talk. This is Books and Nachos. We're going to be talking books for the next two weeks. There are no movies of 2061 or 3001. So I will be free of any such comparisons for the next two weeks as we close out Odyssey. Next week, please join me, 2061. I'm really looking forward to it. Keep reading. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help spread the word about our show by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. You can also find dozens more book reviews at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2014, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated.